This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Fully vaccinated DOD personnel don't need masks in Pentagon facilities anymore. Deputy Defense Secretary Kath Hicks writes in a memo, commanders and supervisors can make exceptions to the new policy. Hicks warns those leaders aren't supposed to ask employees about their vaccination statuses. The General Services Administration is looking for industry help to boost industry collaboration. A new request for information from GSA says its IT vendor management office will, quote, partner with industry to improve government-wide IT acquisition. GSA's notice says the Office of Management and Budget will refer ideas from responses to the RFI and an online platform to the ITVMO for inclusion in policy. The first two littoral combat ships will leave the Navy fleet by the end of this year. The USS Freedom's been in the fleet for 13 years, the Independence for 11 years. USNI News reports the original life of the ships when the Navy commissioned them was at least 25 years. The Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday, says the Navy can't get to its 355-ship goal with the budget it has now. He told the House Armed Services Committee 305 ships is the most it can support today. Captain Jerry Hendricks, U.S. Navy, retired as vice president of the Telemus Group. He's former director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. Jerry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I thought of you this week as I listened to a conversation about World War II and the Navy fleet. 6,200 ships during World War II, and we're talking about 355 today. Welcome, Jerry. Uh, it's good to be here. And, and yes, I mean, that number is kind of astounding when you think about this historically, that, you know, we started the war around 400 ships. And then in a five-year period of time, we ramped up to over 6,000 ships. Uh, and we stayed essentially around 1,000 ships uh, for the better part of the next uh, 30 years. It wasn't until after the Cold War that we actually dipped below 600, then got down below 300 uh, just, a, just a couple decades later. So it, it really is quite amazing at, at how large the Navy was at the end of the Second World War. You're writing in the National Review under the title, Why America Must Be a Sea Power, and you write this about that subject. We'll need a Navy battle force of around 450 ships. We can accomplish it along two paths, building new ships and extending the lives of the ships that we already have. What's the holdup to doing that in the short kind of time frame that you just alluded to, Jerry? We're only trying to get from... Uh, about 290 to you propose 450 in uh, and we're talking about 10 to 30 years. So, I mean, the, the problem right now is capacity and it's capacity on two sides. One is a capacity issue with ship building. Uh, if you really look at uh, our ship uh, building yards right now, uh, we're pretty much maxed out so far as how much work that they can handle uh, given the number of trained personnel that they have there. And so, you know, we're building, we're trying to build two fast attack submarines a year, and we're trying to cut in the Columbia class uh, ballistic missile submarine into that production. That's going to be a challenge in our submarine base. And we're also building uh, two Arleigh Burke class destroyers per year. And that's a challenge for those two yards right now, based upon their schedule, the budgets that they have and the number of personnel you have. So if we actually asked all of them to build more, 
uh, they're going to be hard pressed. Now, fortunately, we are looking at getting the new frigate program coming online here in the next few years and get some frigates in the water starting in the mid 2020s. But from shipbuilding, we're hard pressed based upon capacity. Same thing with ship repair. So if I wanted to extend the lives of my Ticonderoga class cruisers or my Arleigh Burke class destroyers, which are approaching their retirement ages, uh, we don't have as much capacity in ship repair. So if I wanted to put them in for repair or modernization, I need to start doing long lead investments in the floating dry docks and the dry docks that I have around the nation now in order to get them prepared with the right number of workers. This is a long lead strategic problem, which is why I called in my essay that the nation needs to make up its mind whether it wants to be a land power or a sea power and make the appropriate investments from a strategic sense. I think we should be a sea power based upon the threats that we're facing from China and Russia. And I imagine our friends in the Coast Guard, as you talk about the programs that are necessary in the Navy, are saying, don't forget about us, the Polar Security Cutter, and others. Uh, you begin this piece in what I always enjoy about your work, a, a provocative way, to retain its leading position within the global system. The United States should make a conscious decision to pivot back to being a sea power. The inference there, Jerry, is that we pivoted away from being a sea power and we're not today. Am I reading too much into your words? No, you're not reading too much in. In fact, you know, I think that the nation began to stray from being a sea power, which was, which was what it was when it was founded. Uh, the founding fathers, you know, specifically coded it into the Constitution that we should provide and maintain a Navy, but only raise and support an army, meaning it looked at land power as an episodic requirement, whereas the Navy was a persistent uh, requirement that needed to be maintained. But obviously the 19th century and then the 20th century with the two uh, overseas world wars, we became sort of continental in our viewpoint. But now because of where we're at uh, in the world, specifically because of the threats, I think we need to step back, reassess where we're at and make the decision and then sort of return to the wisdom of the founders. I think that sea power and a sea power strategy is the most appropriate way for us to deal with the competitive strategic environment we find ourselves in today, which is not to say that we do away with the land component. Uh, I think it's just a prioritization that we actually look at the Navy and then Air Force, the, 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 uh, the forces that operate in the global commons. And then you look at the, uh, the Army behind that, but we need to prioritize based upon our strategic challenges. Uh, given uh, the threat landscape that you just outlined, great power competition and so on, it sounds to me like you believe we still have an edge that other people think we may have lost. You write, the world we've created is not the world that China and Russia which wish to live in. Does that, does that hold true still when we talk about the South China Sea, when we talk about the Arctic and so on? You and I have had many discussions about both uh, places, and I wonder if we still maintain the edge that it sounds like you think we have or had. Well, I, I do believe that we have an edge in terms of capabilities. I think that our ships, although we have fewer ships than the Chinese Navy does right now, that the ships that we do have are on a capability basis better than the Chinese ships. I also think our submarines are more capable than either the Chinese or the Russian submarines. But what we're seeing is both China and Russia are looking at the, the waters near them, the Arctic Ocean for Russia, South China Sea and East China Sea for China as additional buffer space. Both of these powers are continental powers. They tend to view the acquisition of land as a means of creating additional security barriers around their central strategic core. Now they're turning to the ocean largely because they fear 
not only the ideas, uh, well, actually, the fear of the ideas that come across the sea, the idea like free trade and, and the free sea, that's not exactly in line with their views of the world. And they want to have control of that, both for protection as well as asserting sort of an expanding control of the global system. And that's where we need to push back. And I think the Navy uh, is best placed to do that. If we take all of that to be the case, Jerry, what's the timeline look like for us to maintain that edge? And, and what are the steps to take other than just building more ships and building more shipyard capacity and building more people who are able to build those ships? What else do we have and how much time do we have, Jerry? We, uh, we don't have much time. Uh, in fact, I, after Admiral Davidson's sort of farewell uh, testimony in front of the Armed Services Committees where he said that he felt there was a chance of a Chinese movement against Taiwan uh, within the next six years, I think that sort of sets the window. In fact, I'm, I'm greatly concerned that that window is actually closer to us that the Chinese might move uh, against our interest in the Western Pacific. So I, I actually come to the words of uh, Representative Elaine Luria who recently said we need to stop thinking about Battle Force 2040 and think about Battle Force 2025, which really gets at not only how many ships can I build that are new, but how many uh, ships that I presently have can I extend their lives? So looking at the extension of the Ticonderoga-class cruisers to do a ship-by-ship -ship assessment of them to find out which ones we can preserve, and the same thing with the Flight 1 Arleigh Burks that are coming up for retirement, we probably need a close look at that. If we really want to grow the Navy, it's going to have to be a two-path method, one by building new and the other is by extending the lives of the ships that we already have. Jerry Hendricks, th thanks for coming back on. I appreciate your time as always. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Francis. You can find a link to Jerry's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources up next and about face for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff straight ahead on Government Matters, the data behind General Mark Milley's turnaround on sexual assault. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Senate will consider legislation to make big changes to the way the Defense Department and the services handle cases of domestic abuse. One provision of that bill would take decisions away from commanders and give them to prosecutors. Brenda Farrell's Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Brenda, thanks for coming back on the program. You just completed some work on this issue, the issue of domestic abuse in the military. What did you look at in your work? We looked at everything, all the different phases of domestic abuse from awareness, how does the family advocacy programs advertise to service members and their families, the services that they have, how to go about with a report. We looked at uh, statutory requirements to DOD to provide data to help with oversight. Uh, we did look at data available on commanders' uh, uh, decisions to uh, move forward with the case or not to take uh, any action. And we looked at training. We looked at a whole host of, of issues. As you know, Congress has had a longstanding interest in domestic abuse going all the way back to 2000 when they tasked DOD with commissioning a task force on domestic violence. And there's been a number of uh, reports that we've put out as well as others on this issue. But this is the first time in 20 years that we've taken this broad of a look at domestic abuse in DOD. There, 
There are a number of themes in this work, Brenda, and one of the themes seems to be that DOD is doing part of what's necessary or part of what's uh, prescribed by legislation, but doesn't have the whole picture. Um, one example, you write, DOD met a statutory requirement to collect and report data for incidents that it determined met its criteria for domestic abuse, um, but it hasn't collected and, re and reported accurate data for all domestic abuse allegations received. Is that the challenge, is that the, the Pentagon has taken some of the action that it's supposed to or needs to, but hasn't gone all the way in a lot of these areas? That's correct. They have taken some action. They did meet the requirement that you mentioned that DOD met criteria for domestic abuse, but they haven't taken uh, steps to actually clean up the data regarding the rest of the allegations that include domestic violence. Domestic violence is a subset of domestic abuse. Domestic violence falls under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. These are criminal offenses, and DOD is mandated to report on those offenses as well as commander's actions taken. And we found that even though there had been a statutory requirement for DOD to establish a database to collect such data related to domestic violence as well as the commander's actions, there was no database that contained this information. DOD has struggled with an approach to get this information. Uh, they resorted to going to the DOD met criteria cases and pulling from that uh, incidents that were related to domestic violence and commander's actions. The problem is that where they were pulling from is just a subset itself. It's, it's not the total number of uh, cases dealing with domestic violence. The other problem is incidents that met DOD criteria is not the same as domestic violence cases that fall under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. In other words, there's, there's not everything captured. Under the Code of Military Justice, for example, uh, incidents that are related to violations of uh, military protective orders could be prosecuted, whereas that's not considered when DOD is classifying domestic abuse cases under its DOD MET criteria. Brenda, the, uh, you write, the military services have developed domestic abuse prevention and response training for key personnel that meet some DOD requirements. I underlined the word some while I was reading your report in kind of that ongoing theme that I mentioned earlier that the Pentagon's got part of the work done and hasn't gotten all of the work done. Am I reading that right, Brenda? That's right. As I noted earlier, we've looked at the different phases of uh, domestic uh, abuse prevention and response. And as far as the training goes, there are specific requirements, there's 16 of them, that DOD lays out in its policy for these services to use to develop the training for commanders as well as senior enlisted. And, and there's other training for all service members as well. We did a content analysis looking at that specific training and found that uh, not, not all the services followed what that guidance should be and what should be covered. And there's a lot of key areas of responsibilities that commanders have as well as senior enlisted that they need to know in order to make the right decisions regarding how to handle such cases. But you've got it. DOD's taken some action to get the uh, correct data. They've taken some action toward awareness uh, for their service members and their families. They've taken some action. But I think it's important to keep in mind that many of these issues were brought to DOD's attention as far back as 1999, and they have been struggling for the last two decades 
to fully develop their prevention and training response program. Brenda Farrell of the Government Accountability Office, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Francis. You can find a link to Brenda's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, a data deep dive to fulfill a vision for diversity and equity. Ahead on Government Matters, a top five list for agency leaders to do the job. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. President Biden's executive order on racial equity in the federal government includes direction for agencies to use data to evaluate their equity efforts. The Chief Data Officers Council is already working on how to do that. Temilola Afolabi is research associate at the Center for Open Data Enterprise. She co-leads the Open Data for Racial Equity program there, and she's writing about data and equity along with her uh, colleague Paul Kuhn in GovExec. Temi, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Where are the greatest opportunities for the administration to use data to, to uh, comport with the idea that President Biden laid out in the EO? Uh, thank you for having me. Um, of course, we know that discrimination and racism pervades every aspect of life in the United States and around the world. So that includes health, access to quality health care, that includes fair housing, that includes environmental justice, all of this is exasperated by the discrimination and disparities that we see every day. So we know that data provides an objective, concrete evidence on the institutional and structural barriers that exasperate many of these disparities that we see these groups face. So analyzing quality, publicly available data can do many things, such as identify which communities are at most risk, um, have low infrastructure capacity to handle low, to handle, you know, coastal flooding and which hospitals will need increased resources during COVID-19. All of that can be seen clearly with publicly accessible, high quality data. Uh, you and Paul write about five different areas where the administration has potential to improve criminal justice, healthcare access, environmental justice, fair housing, workforce opportunity. Does the data infrastructure exist in your view for the organizations to do what you propose, to do what you propose? It does, but the unfortunate thing is a lot of this data is in silos. So the federal government has a lot of sources of data, such as the Census Bureau, um, the Department of Health. They have their own large data sets, but they're in, um, interoperable, not interoperable, which means that they can't easily be shared between institutions. There's a lot of safeguards that prevents these people from sharing the data. So a lot of the data is out there but it can't be shared or it's not in a clean format that can be shared. And that's a very large issue that we're dealing with. So before we can even start using that data, how can we clean that data and make it quality enough for it to be used in all of these different sectors? In the work that you've done, have you seen whether or not agencies in your view are trying to work toward that goal or is the is one of the obstacles potentially that agencies are not have, have not begun or have not gotten very far on that journey, Timmy? No, we're definitely seeing steps by multiple agencies, such as the Department of Health, such as the, the Department of Commerce. Um, definitely there are federal level um, initiatives in place to start bridging those silos, bridging those gaps and sharing data, because we know that a lot of this data is, inter is interconnected. So data on health disparities also has to do with transportation access, which also has to do with 
um, climate, like all of those go in one because yeah, they're all interconnected. So the previous administration, that was harder. It was harder to get a data-driven action, you know, off the ground and, you know, happening. But with the Biden administration, he's already come in. For example, he's planning to make an equitable, equitable data working group so that all of his policies going forward by different federal agencies are taken by a data-driven lens. You so I would commend the Biden administration. Uh, you and, and Paul write in this piece, uh, particularly regarding workforce opportunity, we need better data and better data standards, as you referred to earlier, to ensure that workers can access training that matches employers' needs. That data, uh, that data exists, extracting that, mixing it with other data, as you mentioned a moment ago, strikes me as the one of the biggest challenges that agencies face. Is that what you see across all five of these areas, that the, the data and the data standards are problematic for agencies as they try to trade information? Yes, because a lot of these data standards are outdated. We know there's been a technological and data boom in the past you know, decade or so, like big open data. And now there's just these huge repositories of data and they made these repositories with not in mind to be sharing across different systems. And we know that these data, the data warehouses that they hold them in were not made in mind to be shared together with, and especially with standards. New standards have to be made so that they reflect the current times that we're in and the current data that we're working with. Tammy, thanks very much for coming on the program. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, it was a pleasure. You can find a link to her piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that 
the agencies will be able to access that. The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned. You ought to stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.